Welcome back to Hashing It Out. This is a personals interview. Today we have Ari Jules. Um, we can just do the normal thing and give us a quick introduction as to who you are, work on, and uh, maybe how you got there. Uh, I'm a faculty member at Cornell Tech in New York City on Roosevelt Island. I'm also a co-director of IC3, or the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Contracts. And finally, I'm chief scientist of Chainlink Labs, which is a company that builds Oracle technologies for blockchains. We were just we were just chatting a bit before um, we started this, and we were discussing. You're you're mentioning the like massive over requests to come to SPC this year, which is a what I would consider a premier technical blockchain conference where most, I guess, of the um, academic work suits to tries to get there and, and, and talk, publish, discuss recent findings. Can you, can you talk a little bit about um, this conference and maybe the history of it leading up to where it is today? If I remember correctly, it was never this popular um, or hasn't been as popular in, in previous years. Well, it's a relatively new conference. I believe the first edition was in 2019, uh, run by uh, Benedict Bunce and Dan Bonet. It was uh, initially called the Stanford Blockchain Conference. And 2019, it certainly had pretty heavy attendance, but I think we saw the first stirrings of COVID at that time. So many attendees uh, or uh, registrants rather ultimately didn't attend. Uh, we've changed the name to the Science of Blockchains Conference, and Stanford is now partnering with IC3 to run the conference. Next year, the conference will be taking place in New York City, most likely in the fall. This year, we had something like 4,000 registrants for a venue that can only accommodate 1,000. So unfortunately, we had to turn away many would-be eager participants in the event. But it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, lively event with a wide range of talks, many of them quite technical, some of them not so technical, but all of them, in my experience, quite interesting and engaging. I've been in, I guess, the quote unquote blockchain space for a number of years, maybe actually got started doing like, I guess, legitimate um, studying and understanding around 2011. Um, and I remember in the early days, the academic setting, if you will, was, was scant. Getting people to understand with, I guess, with rigor, um, how blockchains are created, why they're useful, what the limitations of them are, uh, the different components that build them and their individual limitations was, was 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 very difficult. And over the years, I've seen that dramatically improve. And I think that has to do with there starting to become some level of of acceptance within university curricula. Can, can you talk about like the difficulty of trying to introduce something like three blockchains into standard computer science curricula over the years because like in my opinion it's always been difficult because the technology is moving too fast for you to have any regularly cadenced coursework that makes sense it, it is a difficult topic to teach precisely as you say because it's so fast moving 
any textbook is going to become obsolete within a year, and it probably takes a year to get a textbook published. The relationship between the blockchain community and the academic one is quite interesting, actually, and ext extends back some decades, really. Early in, uh, in the 1980s, people were, the research community was exploring a concept called eCash. David Schoem, for instance, um, had some landmark I ideas, for instance, um, what are called blind signatures, which were instrumental in constructing privacy-preserving digital cash schemes. And this was a subject of academic study for quite some time, through the 90s, for instance. Um, but ultimately, that venture failed. Uh, eCash, which was very much like cryptocurrency, but involved a model of centralized issuance, just ultimately didn't go anywhere for a number of reasons. Uh, one was the failure of one company that played a pivotal role in the area, DigiCash. Um, uh, another was, I think, that the technology was a little bit ahead of its time and so on and so forth. Okay, roll forward to 2008, and this wonderful, insightful, you know, brilliant construction just drops out of the sky. Of course, we still have no idea who Satoshi Nakamoto is, but Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever she is, he is, or they are, proposed a way of constructing digital cash, I'll call it, using the term in its broadest sense, um, in uh, using means that the academic community had, had just not conceived of. This combination of a decentralized system and mechanism design and so on and so forth to build a, a digital currency system um, really, I think, took the academic community by surprise. But at that point, I think interest in eCash had fizzled out a bit and it wasn't clear that Bitcoin was going to take off. So indeed, it took some time for academics to recognize its significance, both, both its intellectual significance and the real world impact it would ultimately have. But it's worth pointing out that even some of the core components of Bitcoin had their roots in the academic community. Uh, formal research community, if you will. The hash functions used in Bitcoin, for instance, you know, SHA-256 mm -hmm. and right MD-160, just to give you an example, right, not to mention the digital signature schemes, right, had their origins in academic research. So in a sense, academic research played an important role in the development of cryptocurrency since the beginning. That said, Interest from academics in Bitcoin was pretty muted until, I don't know, 2011, 2012, when I think it began to have real world impact and people began to see that it was addressing a problem of consensus in a profoundly new way. And now I would say that the academic community is appreciating and having an influence on the blockchain community in a way that's almost unprecedented for mm -hmm. uh, academic science. You know, I worked in uh, applied cryptography as a researcher for some time, and the work I did over the course of many years saw very little uptake until I went into academia and started 
looking at blockchain technology. Anyway, to answer, that's a long-winded answer to your question of teaching this stuff. Um, I do teach uh, a, a course, a couple of courses actually, on blockchain technology. And indeed, it's hard to create a stable core curriculum. But on the other hand, the fact that things move so quickly keeps the material fresh and makes these courses very lively and keeps students engaged in a way that I haven't seen in, in teaching other courses. Hmm. I come from a background of uh, robotics specifically. I, 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 uh, I went to school for electrical engineering and at a young age, I you know, was fascinated with computers and I, I wanted to be able to build things. You know, Legos was kind of like my um, my inspiration for wanting to put these these computers together and make them do things. Um, it sounds like from from your history, um, you were into cryptography before you know any of these digital cash uh, mediums existed. How did you get into that sort of work and study? Yeah, great great question. Actually, it was digital cash that got me interested in applied cryptography. Uh, back when I was in grad school, a fellow grad student by the name of Pete Gemmel gave me a manuscript, I think it was. I don't even remember whether it was a published paper by a fellow named Stefan Brands, who had devised an e-cash system with a broad range of functionalities. And I was just enthralled by this thing because I had not encountered cryptography before, and I didn't realize how the extent to which math could be used, not just to model the world, but to construct new protocols, right? that it had this kind of constructive potential, which it does in cryptography. Right? Numbers matter in an essential way, in a, a fundamental way um, that uh, that's, that looks very different from the way, for instance, they're used in, in let, let, let's say, uh, physics, more as a, a way to uh, model things or to, to guide the construction of new systems. In the case of cryptography, the numbers are the system. Uh, so that this, this, was, this was many years ago. I was in grad school exploring a, a, a completely different area of computer science, something more akin to machine learning and cryptography. But when I graduated, I wanted to find a job in applied cryptography and uh, found a position at a company called RSA, a company creating uh, applied cryptography, cryptographic tools. And so That's as I say, actually it was, it was digital cash that got me into applied cryptography to begin with. That's wild. Cause I, I, I come from a background of computational physics and I think it's, I, I was first introduced to the concept of cryptography, maybe through uh, books or reading, but realistically through like information theory treatment of um, thermodynamics, which taught me about, you know, encryption decoding and you look at entropy through information theory, you get this concept of um, encoding and so on and so forth that you well, overlaps quite well with a lot of, um, cryptography, but I hadn't thought about the use of it. Like you just mentioned, and that, um, it is much more involved and useful for a given scheme than math being used in other disciplines, like, you know, 
computational physics or chemistry in that it's a model to help describe the universe. Whereas um, how you implement a given type of cryptographic protocol changes the way the humans are interacting with each other and what they rely on, what they trust and what they have to do and what they what don't have to do. And I think that concept is relatively new to people. Um, we built the internet the way it is today without people having to worry too much, but they can do more stuff through some of these protocols, RSA being one of them in terms of them being able to put their credit card on the internet and how we make new protocols, specifically kind of these blockchain networks is allowing people to transact money or other digital scarcities. And I, and I think this concept is relatively new to people in that we can make computer systems built on math that allow humans to do new things specifically digitally. Uh, is that, resonate with you at all in terms of like this like new concept of of how we teach math and how it changes human to human interaction yeah it's a strange and counterintuitive thing this building of systems where the building blocks are hard mathematical problems and the fact that these systems the, the way in which these systems enable human beings to conduct commerce in a trustworthy way. Uh, the, the, all, all of these are, are, as I said, kind of novel and, and counterintuitive um, concepts, I think. Yeah, so, so I think your, your view does resonate with mine. When, you, when you're talking about how your interest um, in cryptography sparked from digital cash, what was it about digital cash? Was it, was it partly uh beyond the mathematics was it partly the economics like the 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 potential for it to be a lucrative field in the future at the time i was more interested i think in the applied cryptography in the paper i was reading on eCash than the eCash itself now the fact that it enabled this application was somewhat interesting but as I said, it was the fact, the idea of building a system where the building blocks are hard mathematical problems that was so intriguing to me. And digital cash, you know, the ability to transfer value on blockchains is certainly interesting, but it's not what interests me at least most uh, when I think about blockchain systems. I'm more interested in smart contracts and some of the more advanced functionalities that blockchains enable than I am simply in the ability of human beings to send money, money to one another instantaneously and, and quasi privately, although that is obviously important and impactful. What do you see as these other applications? Like how, how do you see these networks expanding beyond simple value transfer? Not so simple, it's, but value transfer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really hard to say. I, mean, I got involved fairly early on in my foray into blockchain land. I, I got interested in Oracle systems because I recognized that if we're going to do something really interesting with blockchains, with smart contracts in particular, at least interesting in my view, those smart contracts are going to have to consume data from off-chain systems. And at the time I started thinking about this kind of thing back in 2015, say, 
we didn't really have great Oracle system designs. As I began to explore the design of Oracle systems, I started to encounter some interesting use cases. Um, DeFi is certainly, is certainly one of those. And um, um, another that has been particularly uh, of interest to me recently is um, NFTs, um, which of course can be constructed independently of the, the use of oracles, um, but which I think are gonna be greatly enriched through the use of, of oracles. Um, future use cases are, are kind of hard to anticipate. People talk about things like insurance and uh, automated insurance and so on and so forth. Um, I certainly think that applications of that kind are going to be interesting, but um, it's really hard to know where the technology is going to go. Two years ago, I would not have guessed that uh, images of, uh, of apes Right, would be one of the uh, premier use cases for, for blockchains. And on the face of it, it's a pretty frivolous one, but I, I think actually it's going to have a, NFTs are going to have a profound cultural impact. So in a word, I, I, I would say at, at the moment, at least, um, NFTs are one of the applications I'm most enthusiastic about. And, and DeFi is another. I just think it's uh, it changes the way we conceptualize financial instruments uh, so fundamentally that I think it's going to have profound and lasting impact on the, the whole financial sector. Do you, like, because we were maybe unable to see, say, we'll say four years ago, we were unable to see the kind of proliferation of NFTs and how it got everyone excited. So we're worried about ICOs and regular, you know, just making coins, I'd say at that time. Yeah. Um, if you had to look back and look at Bitcoin to today and the massive swath of platforms and applications leading up to maybe DAOs and NFTs as forward thinking applications of these things, like what do you, what are the, what are blockchains useful for? Cause you have simple value transfer, digital scarcity, right? Like fungible digital scarcity with Bitcoin. And then we generalize that with Ethereum to be somewhat arbitrary scarcity, um, not necessarily attached to any just, just value, but metadata. NFTs are just basically a token of, of metadata and ownership and then some value. Like what is, what is the general purpose for blockchains? Why, like, why, why are they useful and in, in what context? Well, if we look at DeFi, as I said, I think they, transform the way that we conceptualize financial instruments. They now become computer programs instead of legal agreements, which is essentially what they are in the, the real world. Now, of course, legal agreements, there has to be an interface between legal agreements or legal convention and blockchain assets. But this transformation to, to computer programs, I, I think is going to have an enormous impact uh, let me let me give you one example. My favorite example is flash loans. There is no analog that I'm aware of to flash loans, this blockchain phenomenon, in the conventional financial industry. And it is the technical properties of blockchains that allow these things to exist. So uh, 
just for listeners who may not be familiar with flash loans, a uh, flash loan is essentially the ability to borrow an essentially arbitrary amount of money with no collateral and without identifying yourself. The catch is that you have to use, borrow the money and use it within the same transaction. If you borrow the money and you fail to pay it back, the transaction is rewound, it reverts, and it's though, as though you never borrowed the money to begin with. But try walking into a bank today and saying, I want to borrow $20 million. It's just for the day, but I don't want to provide any collateral and I don't want to identify my, myself. Right? You would be quickly, I think, ushered out of the bank. Um, if somebody were pressing a red button under a desk somewhere. Uh, so that, that's an example of uh, one of the capabilities that this reframing of financial instruments as software enables. And I think there are a lot more. And this is actually one of the topics that my group is exploring at Cornell Tech. We're thinking about what other novel financial instruments you can construct using blockchain technologies. So that's one example. Uh, as for NFTs, um, you know, at the moment, they're basically just tokenized JPEG files, but I think they can be a lot more. And let, let me give you some, let me describe some of the research my group is doing, and I think that will help illustrate some of the ways that the NFT landscape can be enriched. One of the problems the NFT community is encountering today happens when NFT drops take place. So as you know, NFTs are often sold in big batches, like 10,000. And what often happens when a, an NFT is popular is that at the time it's dropped, the NFTs all get snapped up by bots. And the bot masters then turn around and resell these things. They essentially scalp the NFTs. Uh, this happens also for sneakers, you know, and all, all kinds of popular items that are sold in this way through drops. How do we remedy this problem? I think that the key, uh, people have tried to do this by restricting the number of NFTs you can buy per address and so on and so forth, but th those are fragile approaches. So I think the key is going to be decentralized identity. My group did a little experiment a couple of months ago at ETH Denver. We ran not an NFT drop, but a raffle, which looked very much like an, an NFT drop, in which we enforced a policy that uh, a single user could receive only a single raffle ticket, you know, equivalent to a policy in an NFT drop where um, you allow only one NFT per purchase per user. And the way we did this was by having users create essentially decentralized identity credentials uh, using, for instance, their social security numbers in a privacy preserving way is important, of course. Uh, so now we're talking not just about tokenized ape images, but about a, an ecosystem of collectibles and art interfacing with a decentralized identity ecosystem. And this can go much further. Our ultimate goal, our vision, is that artists should be able to create through a kind of policy engine smart contracts that will enforce a rich range of policies on who's able to buy their NFTs, uh, how they get resold, and so on and so forth. Uh, some of the artists we've spoken with are interested in offering discounts to fellow artists. Well, how do they do that? There's no way to do that today. 
at least uh, without just relying on the honor system, which is going to be fragile in, a blockchain, in the blockchain ecosystem, of course. But if we have a decentralized identity ecosystem, then that type of thing becomes possible. Hmm. It looks, it's, it just sounds like you're really researching a lot of relationships that can be had with the agents who exchange uh, these NFTs. I know personally, I try to use NFTs beyond um, just simple, you know, tokenization of JPEGs in a way where it was um, allowing users to kind of level up in some sort of tier system within a a DAO uh, social institution where you could accrue some sort of reputation within the system by participating with non-financial incentives, but these tokens would be given based on your ability to help, you know, each other out and to communicate positively within a community. Um, so like I was very interested in, in building um, and leveraging NFTs in that sort of direction. So I can definitely see um, where your interest comes from when you, when you're talking about NFTs having a use beyond, you know, just trading pictures. Yeah. You're, you're basically talking about, decentralized identity credentials. Reputation, in a sense, is a credential. And that reputation can be tokenized in the form of an NFT. You can think POAPs, for instance, are not mm -hmm. quite a tokenization of reputation, but a tokenization of some form of interaction with the community. For instance, yeah, attendance at a conference. And indeed, NFTs can represent all kinds of things. Plus, they can represent fine art, they can represent a range of collectibles. Ultimately, when we all migrate to the metaverse, whatever the metaverse <laughs> is, I don't think any of us knows, our possessions, once digitized, may well take the form of NFTs. And that means they're going to be of really deep importance in our day-to-day -day interactions. I have an interesting side question here like you have a good concept of how things currently work and what are reasonably good research areas on how these things can be used in the future why stay in academia why not build a company and and flesh out these concepts outside of uh i would say a reasonably constrained environment for i don't want to say innovation but i would think i would argue academia tends to move at a slower pace than than industry what keeps you there what what, what motivates you to, to to stay in this environment and not break out and kind of work on your own that's a that's a really good question i, I spent 17 years in industry and the reason i moved to academia was that i felt i could have a greater impact on industry practice from academia than I could in industry. And that's actually turned out to be the case. In a way, so academia is perhaps slower moving in terms of its core curriculum, but in terms of the research that academics do, it's much faster moving, faster moving in the sense that we're exploring ideas on a time horizon well in advance often of that um, in industry, you know, startups, for instance, are just trying to get a product out in the next three months and not thinking necessarily about what that product is going to look like in 
five years. Often there is a gap between the research academics are doing and both current and conceivable industry need. I don't think that's true in the blockchain community. And that's one of the reasons that I'm doing research in this area. Academic ideas are being translated into blockchain systems at an, an incredibly rapid pace. Sometimes alarming. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, indeed. Sometimes alarming uh, because often the technologies that are getting deployed are not terribly mature. But I would say there's a wonderful synergy between the industry blockchain community and the academic blockchain community. And in fact, one of the reasons that we founded IC3 was to facilitate the conversation between the two communities, which we knew even at the time that we launched IC3 back in 2015-2016, which we knew was going to be um, a, a vigorous one. So um, academia, I think, is, is, a, is a great place to explore blockchain technologies in a freewheeling way and to have a substantial impact on industry practice. I, I have also, as I mentioned, one of my roles is as chief scientist at Chainlink. And some of the ideas that my group has developed on the academic side are being taken up by Chainlink, some uh, Oracle technologies and technologies for enforcing what's called fair transaction ordering, trying to level the playing field in DeFi, as it were. I would no, go ahead. I say I definitely agree with that from my experience of of uh, academic fields compared to industry. Like I, it's 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 exciting to see the level of integration between the two and how fast some of these things get picked up, implemented, and then um, kind of help prove whether or not something works, or at least test like test the boundaries in a real environment and whether or not something works. Because when you add Almost 99% of the cases of an application within blockchain is monetary, has some monetary incentive associated with it. When you add that, you end up with a lot more motivation to break things than, than most experiments, I'd say. So you end up understanding whether or not something is works the way you think it does because people don't want to go through anything they can possibly do to break it in order to capture money from it or game it in some way. And so like that aspect of motivated attack and tight integration between what I would say rigorous development of technology is, is something that I, I think is, is, a, is a wonderful combination. And, and I'm excited to see it kind of grow over time. Do you see any pitfalls or things to look out for in, in, in the future of that developing tighter and tighter? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say that money can have a corrosive influence and I think can distort people's interest in the new technology in ways that are, that are not always healthy. Uh, so I have seen students who are interested in blockchain technology because they want to make a quick buck, mm -hmm. not because it's so intellectually engaging and, because oh, it's, it's, it's interesting because one of your students was Phil Dian, who kind of created the concept of MEV in the first place, which has now motivated a good portion of this I guess, subculture of 
people looking to take advantage of transaction ordering? Well, yes, there's an interesting history there. Um, so at, at, as you're suggesting, you know, my uh, group uh, published a paper. Uh, Phil was the, the lead author on what came to be known as MBV. That's a term we coined in the paper back in, in 2019, 2020. And since then, the PhD students in my group have taken, I think, di divergent paths towards addressing the problem of MEV. Um, I think we all in the end have the same goal, which is try to, to try to mitigate the negative impacts of MEV, but we're trying to get there in different ways. Uh, so Phil indeed co-founded Flashbots with the idea that MEV is unavoidable and the best we can do is to democratize it. And I'm somewhat simplifying his, his point of view here. Um, that's not my preferred approach to the, to the problem. Uh, I would prefer to see us start with an approach that tries to reduce the negative consequences of MEV from the outset. Uh, so I have other students uh, looking to build what we call fair transaction ordering systems. I, my, my student, Mahemna uh, Kelkar, for instance, has been spearheading work in this area, helped by Sishan Long. Uh, we have um, built a system called uh, Themis, successor to uh, Iquitas, original system, that looks to, in a nutshell, to order transactions essentially on a first-come, first-served basis. And it's my belief, this hypothesis still needs to be proven, but it, it's my belief that this will lead to fairer DeFi systems in the sense of reducing the harmful impacts of MEV, reducing MEV opportunities. Uh, uh, well, we'll have to see whether that indeed comes to pass, but this system, Themis, for instance, is being taken up in industry and I hope will we'll roll out soon. Do you feel like yeah. there's an there's an ethical uh, dilemma for working in the space and seeing some of the theoretical um, works become, I guess, like, uh, what was it, Mount Olympus or Olympus Dow? Um, like, I guess some of these DeFi projects that end up kind of causing a lot of uh, people to lose their money. Um, yeah, well, this issue, this ethical issue isn't peculiar to blockchain technologies. All technology is a double-edged sword. And, and um, it's been very encouraging to see the range of interesting and positive use cases for smart contracts, discouraging to see some of the abuses. For instance, my um, group, along with uh, Sarah, Sarah Michael John, um, you know, uh, very well-known researcher um, in particular uh, who's done seminal work exploring the privacy limitations of Bitcoin. Um, we uh, explored uh, a smart contract called Forsage. Uh, Forsage, I don't know if you've come across it at all. At one point, it was the number three contract in Ethereum by gas consumption. It was a pyramid scheme. And 
it was, you know, pyramid schemes have been around for forever, right? Um, but it was facilitated by smart contracts in the sense that the very trust properties of smart contracts could be used to market this financial vehicle in a misleading way. And in particular, those um, promoting Forsage suggested that because smart contracts are uh, autonomous and have all of these you know, trust minimizing and so on and so forth, that Forsage couldn't possibly be a scam. But it was essentially a classical pyramid scheme where money flowed to the top, nearly to the, you know, in particular to the creators and, and promoters. And as you may have seen, uh, the, the SEC now is, uh, is prosecuting both the creators and some of the more prominent promoters. So, you know, the fact that smart contracts can be used for this purpose is, is somewhat discouraging. But I, but I think in, inevitable for any technology. So we, we as technologists certainly have to reflect on the uses of technology, how we want to promote it, how we want to steer it in an, in an ethical direction. But there's no such thing as a technology that can be used purely for, for good. That's true of blockchain technology. That's proves, proves, uh, true of so many others. Certainly in the case of MEV, um, there, there are a host of really thorny ethical questions, uh, which we have we, we debate vigorously within my, my group. And I, I don't think we've come to any conclusions about the best way to approach the MEV problem. I would imagine that also stands for privacy preserving technologies as well, particularly within blockchain or not. And then one of the recent larger controversies slash influencing things going on is, is the sanctioning of tornado cash yeah. uh, by the United States. And then people like Matt Green republishing them for teaching purposes or, you know, code of speech scenarios. Uh, like how does, like, how do you see that playing out? Because with the current ongoing innovations of privacy preserving technologies, becoming more robust, like, you know, via zero knowledge applications or whatever, whatever you can come up with. Mostly I say zero knowledge applications right now, like the ability of people to do surveillance on a network is going to get more and more and more detrimented. Um, and policy people are not going to like that, or at least, you know, people who try to enforce criminal justice, illicit finance activity, whatever, aren't, aren't going to like that. But I don't like, I don't see, I see this clash continuing and growing over the course of the next five years. How does, how do we, as people who make this stuff, hopefully ethically, like push forward in an environment like that? Yeah, th this, this is certainly a, a really challenging question. Paradoxically, privacy-preserving technologies can erode privacy. Bitcoin is a case in point where ostensibly it's a privacy-preserving technology. It turns out that it doesn't provide real anonymity. It only oh, the provides old days. <laughs> the old days of the anonymous Bitcoin network. And, right, yeah, yeah and, exactly. And now the, the, uh, the, I guess, consequences of people acting as though it was. Exactly, right? Privacy enhancing technologies can lull people into a false 
sense of security. And in cybersecurity in general, the advantage lies with the attackers. So I'm not convinced that rolling out even stronger privacy preserving technologies is ultimately going to result in stronger privacy for good or bad for, for the users of these, of these systems. But in any case, what I do think is important is striking a good balance between the need for law enforcement and regulators to have insight into what's going on in these financial systems and the, the need, the, the right for users of these systems to enjoy some degree of privacy. I think we can try to strike this type of balance by building in accountability mechanisms. Doing that is hard. Right? And the accountability mechanism often takes the form of a backdoor. And backdoors are a slippery slope in, in all kinds of ways in, in terms of the technologies that implement them. You know, once you create a backdoor, uh, there's always the risk that it's going to get compromised. And politically, if you make the backdoor available to one uh, government, then other governments are going to clamor for uh, exactly the same access. And uh, some governments may be, uh, institutions in general, may be more well-intentioned than, than others. So I think that these, these questions in general are, are pretty thorny. But I, I do think that by creating let's say, um, more levers, more sophisticated ways to access secrets, we may be able to help ensure that regulators don't take too heavy-handed an approach to blockchain technologies. I think regulation is very important. Consumers need to be protected, but they need to be protected in myriad ways. And one of those is having their, their privacy protected. Uh, in the case of Tornado Cash, um, the approach was perhaps out of technical necessity, a pretty heavy handed one that caught up, I, I think, um, uh, a number of perfectly honest, well-intentioned users. Um, if we build systems, as I suggested, with more levers, and it's not entirely clear what form these, these levers and knobs should have, but, but with more um, flex flexible technical capabilities, then we may enable regulators to take a more nuanced approach to solving the real problems in the blockchain landscape, cryptocurrency landscape. When you, um, when you mentioned that you, one of your research groups was looking into um, applications of decentralized identity, does that, in, does decentralized identity um, include, uh, I guess, some level of privacy guarantees so that your identity is rolling or your identity is hard to map to, you know, your real identity. Um, I, I've had experience with bright ID in the past uh, and some, you know, um, sort of like decentralized identity products. Um, but could you talk more about like, I guess what, what level of privacy guarantees are associated with how you, envision good decentralized identity means? This, this isn't a topic in which the uh, academic community, or at least the, the, the scholarly community, let me say, has, has done a huge amount of research. 
and there are a whole range of credential systems, as, as they're often called, that um, provide any of a number of different privacy mechanisms. So you've got uh, anonymous credentials, you've got credentials with conditional anonymity, it can be revoked by a uh, committee, for instance. Um, there are um, credentials where your anonymity can be revoked if you abuse the credential by using it by double spending, for instance, or using it multiple times in an inappropriate way. So we have lots of, of technical tools here. The problem that my group has been focusing on is re relates to privacy, but is, is slightly different. And that's the problem of bootstrapping the decentralized identity um, ecosystem. Right? So there, there, there is a large swath of the industry interested in decentralized identity. You know, even um, let's say uh, well-established technology companies are interested in decentralized identity because they don't want to incur the liability of storing highly sensitive data. They would rather see that, that data in the hands of users. We have this idea that uh, big tech wants to suck up all everyone's data as much as possible. Uh, and this is true to a certain extent. Uh, data mining is obviously a profitable business, but there's liability associated with holding sensitive data. And there are many firms that would uh, rather not have to custody that, that, that data. So there's broad interest in decentralized identity, but there's a fundamental problem here. It's a chicken and the egg problem, namely that um, we can't create a decentralized identity system until there are issuers, as there are authoritative entities around that can create decentralized identity credentials, right? Until the DMV is willing to issue you a driver's license on a, on a blockchain or, or is it a, another type of decentralized identity credential uh, or reputation tokens, you know, what you were suggesting earlier, Jesse, are issued by some, some authority, right? So, uh, you know, we, we won't have a decentralized identity system until these authorities, these issuers exist, but nobody wants to create an issuer or run an issuance service until people, until there's a use case for decentralized identity, right? So as I said, we have this chicken and the egg problem. And this is the problem that my research group has been taking aim at. Um, uh, two students of mine in particular, um, Deepak Maram and, and Fan Zhang, um, were uh, spearheading the development of a system called uh, DECO. And earlier we had a system called Town Crier. These are Oracle technologies uh, that we feel can be used to address this problem. And the way that they get around this log jam is by creating decentralized identity credentials based on existing web data with no modification to existing web servers. Right? So, so here's the idea. As I said, the DMV is probably not going to become a decentralized identity issuer anytime soon in an explicit way. But suppose that we can, in a trustworthy way, export data from DMV websites onto a blockchain. Well, then we can create decentralized identity credentials without the DMV having to provide explicit support, without their necessarily even knowing that this is happening. And using these Oracle systems that I've mentioned, that, that is possible, actually. And we can do this in a privacy-preserving way. So 
rather than just exporting all the data on your driver's license in its entirety, and that may include your birth date, which you most definitely don't want to expose on a, on a blockchain, what we can do is export bits of data piecemeal or functions of this private or sensitive data. So for instance, you can create a uh, decentralized identity credential on the blockchain saying, uh, proving that you're a resident of California, according to the California DMV, right? without also exporting your, your birth date. So as I said, it's this, this chicken and the egg problem that we've, we've been taking aim at with these Oracle technologies. And um, along with uh, Jasleen Malvi, um, the, these two students I mentioned have um, uh, led the development of a system called uh, Candid, uh, which uses Oracle technologies to create decentralized identity credentials of this way, and also in a privacy preserving way to deduplicate identity credentials to enable you to create a unique credential. So can, you can accomplish things like enforcing a one NFT per person policy in an airdrop. Interesting. Slight, slight change of, of, of questioning here. Um, I don't know, maybe not. How do you teach people about this? Uh, I'd imagine one way in which you've experimented with and others have is, is writing novels around how this stuff works and what a realistic scenario or world looks like had these things been implemented correctly. Um, some write more dystopian pieces like Cory Doctorow, others don't. Uh, like you wrote one book can you talk about that and why you chose to write it. And if that's like a ongoing process for you of, of, of writing novels to help build worlds on how this technology uh, can change. Yeah, I, I wrote a, a novel entitled Tetractus a uh, number of years ago now. Uh, and that uh, novel relates to our early discussion, earlier discussion about um, mathematics as a building block for computer systems and through, through, through cryptography in particular. And the premise of the book was that a Pythagorean cult, Pythagoras, of course, was an ancient Greek philosopher and mystic who believed that number was, number is, uh, as he would put it, was the uh, building block for the, for the universe, um, not, not just for computing systems, because, of course, there no, were no computing systems at, at the time. Uh, so the premise was that a Pythagorean cult had figured out how to uh, factor the product of large primes and, and to, to break the uh, mathematical problem that underpins the RSA algorithm, which is a fundamental cryptographic primitive used to secure protocols on, on the internet, uh, more prevalent at the time that the novel was published than, than now, but there are alternative um, mathematical bases for the cryptographic protocols we use today that are uh, vaguely similar. So, so that's what the, that was the, the premise of the book at the time. And it was an exploration of how cryptography is changing the trust equations according to which we conduct commerce in our lives more, more generally. Um, as it happens, I've been working on a novel uh, about uh, blockchain technology 
Um, I won't give any more details quite yet, but I have uh, just finished up uh, the manuscript and, and I'm shopping it around now. Um, and um, I, I, I think um, I, I've learned a, a lot about writing since I, I, I wrote the first book, that this one I'm much happier with than, than I was with Detractus. And this book is based uh, in large part on the, the research that my group has, has been doing. If you're feeling froggy, I'd love to read it. Uh, <laughs> so we, uh, ha happy to give you a copy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I worked, awesome. I, we, we interviewed uh, Carl Schrader uh, a while ago who wrote Stealing Worlds, which was, in my opinion, one of the better depictions of a universe um, where I'd say alternative economies fueled by technology and AR allowed for like Place, a, people, a place for people to opt out and gave a realistic scenario of how this stuff kind of could change the world. Um, I'd be curious to see how other people building universes around this technology also kind of view that and whether or not it's, it's like what implications exist and, and how they view the pitfalls and changes in, in human relationships. And so like, if you haven't read that, I would definitely encourage it. And also I'd love to read yeah, a copy of what you're, what you're writing. Yeah, be, be happy to happy to shoot you one. Yeah, Corey Doc. I've read a lot of Corey Docto's work too because we've interviewed him a few times, and it's it's definitely a, a much more in your face of the dystopian point of of the things that we're building and what negative implications they may have. Is your is your worldview more optimistic? <laughs> um. Yeah, I I would I would say that my. I, I <laughs> That was a weird, yeah. My, uh, yeah, long, long pause there. Uh, I, I wouldn't characterize my book as dystopian, although it does touch on some of the ways that blockchain systems can be abused. Uh, I would consider it to be a pro-blockchain work in the end. And the, the protagonist is uh, certainly pro-blockchain, far, far more than I am, in fact. How do you, like, in your experience of writing novels, has that, like, that's a difficult process. It's a very time-consuming process. Um, it does it. Have you found that experience to change the way you think about technologies and and, and like as the process of exploring and fleshing out narratives and implications of those narratives and building the world has that changed? like research directions or your understanding or thoughts around a given technology and its implications? Well, in some sense, I'm in my main profession as a faculty member at Cornell Tech in the business of writing science fiction. It's just that I happen to publish it in scholarly <laughs> menus most of the time. Um, so I, I consider writing novels to be an extension of or compatible with the, the work I do on a day-to-day -day basis. As I mentioned, the novel reflects some of the research that's going on in my group. And I, in some ways, it's, it has um, inspired me to dig more deeply into some of the topics we've been exploring. Because in writing the novel, I realized how important they they can be in this um, fanciful future that I've crafted in the, the novel that may become reality in five to ten years. So 
there's certainly a conversation going on between my literary endeavor here and my, my work as a, as a researcher. Um, writing is hard. It's, you know, it's, it is, it's hard for everyone, but for me, at least it often becomes a flow activity. If you're familiar with that concept, you know, the type of activity you can plunge into in a way such that you, you lose track of time. And for some, that's the, that, that is, um, the, an optimal psychological state. That is the definition uh, in a roundabout way of, of happiness, I suppose. So um, it, it's a, it's a, it can be an immensely frustrating process, but it can also be a really fulfilling one for me, at least. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Is there, uh, we wrap up. Um, is there any questions you would have liked us to ask that we didn't? I think this was a nice wide ranging conversation. So I don't have any other questions or information to impart. Um, that's top of mind at the moment. Uh, thank you very much for asking such interesting and incisive questions. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for giving good answers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you.